Dharma talk time is a, an opportunity for still another kind of practice. It's the same practice, but it's a different occasion. And that's the opportunity to practice listening. Listening to a Dharma talk is like listening to any anything else in one sense and in other ways can be a little bit different. Uh, the point is to uh, drop the tendency that we all have fairly strongly uh, to agree and disagree. I mean, your mind may do it, but just see it and let it go. Um, obvious distractions naturally come back, but there are some distractions that we don't consider distractions, and it's when the mind gets all caught up in agreeing and dis- disagreeing, justifying some position you have. Or, uh, if you can let all of that go and just listen. So it's a practice. It's uh, often done uh, in practice centers and monasteries in a formal meditation posture. I'm not suggesting you do that, but it, uh, the key thing is that you listen. Uh, when it happens, it's as if the whole body is just one giant ear, just really concerned with nothing else but listening and just allowing it to come in to affect you. Then you can disagree later on. We left off last time um, in an attempt to briefly convey what the condensed method of Anapanasati is. That is, the classical method is is comprised of 16 contemplations. All of these contemplations have the breath as part of the contemplation. And if you recall, there are four realms that are touched. These 16 cover the body, feelings, the mind, and then the lawfulness that underlies all of this. And we had just started the body part. Before I go any further, though, um, I'd like to say a few words about what it is that we're developing when we do a practice of this sort. Whether you know it or not, you've already been doing this for a number of days. For me, the uh, most economical and brief way to characterize a great deal about what our practice is uh, comes from the words of a great Japanese Zen master, Dogen. Someone once asked him, uh, what is the awakened mind? And he said, the awakened mind is the mind that is intimate with everything. Uh, That phrase has kept me busy for quite a few years. I've gone over it. I don't know, I can't count that high. Because in in a sense, every situation we find ourselves in, uh, how would you be intimate with this situation? What would that be? What would intimacy be in a situation of this sort? 
in this particular teaching where the breath is featured, of course, the first challenge is to be intimate with the breathing. In using the term intimacy here, and it applies to everything that we have been doing and are doing, it's something like this, a brief way to get a sense of its meaning. Typically, what happens is that we separate ourselves from what's happening to us by thinking about it. Or something is happening, and we think about what's happening to us, and in the process, separate ourselves from the raw experience of what's happening to us. Intimacy of practice is when there's no separation, there's no gap. How do we accomplish that? A lot of it is simply by seeing separation. I mean, if you try to force yourself to be at one with what you're doing, you can get into a kind of sentimental uh, delusion, but also it's very unfulfilling, it doesn't work. You can't make yourself be at one with anything. You can try. But what you can see very clearly with our practice, with our old friend mindfulness, is when there's separation. This applies uh, to the contemplation of the body, feelings, the mind itself. And finally, the awakened state, uh, the experience of enlightenment, the taste of it has to do with the ultimate intimacy. And guess who's preventing that? Well, maybe for the new people, I'll tell you, you are, (laughs) and I am. There's no separation from between you, in quotes, and the universe, in quotes. So to begin with, and I think if you think back, you can see that we've been emphasizing this. Uh, the whole point is to allow the breathing to be the breathing, to listen to the body and let the body tell you how the breathing should be. And we covered the first two last time, briefly, if you recall, in the, the Buddha's teaching, he talks about uh, when you breathe in deeply, to know that you're breathing in deeply. When you breathe in uh, not deeply, or sh- if the breath is short, to know that you're breathing in a short breath. And if you remember, what I was suggesting is that, that that is just a code or a shorthand for knowing all the different qualities of breathing, to really get to know the universe of breathing. And by now, I think some of you know a lot more about uh, the different ways, the different flavors of the breath than you did when you first came here. That in itself is a practice. That is, if we had more time, we would spend more time on really uh, examining the qualities of the breathing, the different ways in which the breath is. And uh, even certain practical techniques come out of it. If you're ever feeling sleepy or dull, uh, look more carefully at the breath. If you give the mind a little bit more to do, it has a a way of waking itself up. This is done in other ways in in, uh, Vipassana practice. People who do uh, noting will, uh, in that practice, you might note more than just the rising falling. You might notice uh, the touching of the cushion uh, by the buttocks or the knees. 
so that you give the mind a little bit more to do. And here, you can give the mind a little bit more to do, and instead of just staying with the breath, begin to notice uh, each breath. And little by little, you can see that some breaths are coarse, and some are fine, some are, of course, long, and some are not. Some seem to happen slowly, and some rather rapidly. Some are smooth, some are bumpy. Sometimes it's a great joy to breathe, other times it can be very uh, uncomfortable and even painful. And so the first two contemplations are the beginnings of getting to know uh, breathing. The whole method succeeds or fails on our ability to develop conscious breathing. Because the awareness that we will be using, that we have been using starting yesterday, to examine all that is other than breath, that awareness is grounded in the breathing. And sometimes we use it to examine the breath alone, exclusively, but a good deal of the time, and more and more, as you probably know, we are using that awareness, which is nourished on the consciousness of each breath, to examine all that is other than breath, to be able to see that clearly, to bring it into focus. When we move into the third contemplation, uh, <clears throat> what the Buddha says is being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes in. Being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes out. There's a lot of controversy on this one tonight. I don't want to, us to get off into a, a doctrinal, scholarly... Uh, let's just say that one approach, one interpret, uh, approach to the meaning of this, and the one that I... Uh, favor and seems quite obvious to me the more I practice, is that what it means is just what it says. <laughs> that as you're breathing, you become aware of your whole body. It has been uh, suggested that what this means is just the breath of the, the breath body and even limited to just the nose tip, which to me seems to trivialize the whole, the whole sutta. Not trivialize it, but limit it. So, um, if the interpretation or the translation that I feel is the right one is, is wrong, uh, then my delusion is being transported to you and I apologize. <laughs> but having lived with this one for quite a while, the, to the best of my ability and knowledge, uh, what it means is what it says. And you can get scholars who will tell you in Pali. What it says is, uh, breathing in, you're aware of the whole body. Breathing out, you're aware of the whole body. Okay. Um, some of you may already have begun to, uh, without even intentionally doing that, notice. Uh, we do suggest you know, that you be in touch with the body. We talk about posture a fair amount. And one of the things you learn uh, you may have learned it, perhaps you don't know it. If not, you'll see it at some point. That the breath is a very powerful conditioner of the body. That is, as goes the breath, so goes the body. I mean, it's not the, to the total conditioner of the body, but it has a tremendous effect on the condition of the body. Uh, this shouldn't be a surprise or anything startling. Uh, we come into life 
we have to start breathing, right? Little babies are whacked sometimes to get them to breathe. Isn't that what happens? Uh, if they don't, we have a big problem there. It's called death. So we know that uh, breath is bringing with it some kind of a mysterious, extraordinary energy that is literally life force, whatever name you want to give it. Well, and then here we are, further down the pike after years, we've grown up and we're sitting here at IMS, still breathing. That uh, capacity to breathe, that function, is something that we usually take for granted unless we have bronchitis or asthma or a cold or we've run too far, whatever. But the truth is, it's quite an extraordinary process we're attending to. It's life itself. And so as you begin to attend to the breath and you begin to see all the different qualities of the breathing, at a certain point you'll see that as the breath becomes more refined, as it becomes more subtle, uh, deeper, as the uh, entry and exiting of the breath becomes uh, more fluid, and with practice you begin to experience the breath throughout the body more, naturally. There are guided meditations uh, which can enhance this ability to experience breath sensations throughout the body. But even without them, if you continue to practice, uh, your sensitivity to the impact of the breath on the body develops. And so you see that uh, if the body becomes more excuse me, if the breathing becomes more calm, more peaceful, more refined, you may discover that it's easier to sit. You can sit longer, more comfortably. Your posture may naturally be more erect. And at least to some degree, that has to do uh, with the tremendous uh, ability that the breath has to condition the body. Check your experience. If if, you, if that seems to bear, uh, be borne out by your practice so far. If not, uh, see if it's so. It also means that when the breath is not smooth, when it's uh, uh, agitated, ragged, fast, hurried, uh, it affects the body as well in a negative sense. Now, of course, the breath is affecting the mind too. But remember, in these first four contemplations, it's about the body. So if you were practicing in the classical way, you would be spending a lot of time contemplating the body and the breath in somewhat different ways. The fourth contemplation, which grows out of the third one, I'll read it to you. I'm breathing in and making my whole body calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my whole body calm and at peace. This is how the yogi practices. Uh, if it's true that the breath has a powerful conditioning capacity on the body, then it's just a natural extension of that, that eventually the body, the breath becomes very, very calm the body becomes very, very calm. And what happens is the mind, the breath, and the body become a unity. They come together. There's a unification. Uh, and as the practice matures, there's no separation, really. And it's extremely important 
however you come by it. Because uh, when the breath, attention, and the body uh, become unified, you have a tremendous foundation of stability um, from which to observe all the different states that visit us. And as you all know, some of us have been visited by some very difficult mind states. It's not that this is the whole thing, but it certainly helps if the body is planted, stable, comfortable. And that's part of why we make such a fuss about the posture. When you can really sit, and the ancients often call this acquiring a seat. You don't just plop your butt down on the cushion and you get it. That's just, uh, you, you, just, that's just you just began, that's all. Acquiring a seat takes a while to really acquire a seat and it finally really doesn't have to do with the cushion. So you don't feel uh, intimidated. You can acquire a seat on a chair or a bench. It's really, finally, it's much more of an inner state of where there's a, uh, a unification and the scattered quality of the mind uh, at least temporarily disappears. There are ways of helping this along. Uh, for example, some of them you already know, some of you do, you've done sweeping with a Goenka style of practice, or sometimes we do it here. Uh, some sitting, if you want to help this along, just uh, start off by being with your breathing as you've been doing all along. And then uh, take a journey through the body as you breathe in and breathe out. Start at the top of the head and just uh, make a tour of the body. Just move through the body at your own pace, but while breathing in and breathing out. It's not that you drop the breath and then make a tour of the body. By uh, having a more encompassing, encompassing or uh, comprehensive kind of attention, you can experience the different parts of the body as you breathe. You may find, especially if you stay at a part long enough, that you'll see that that part of the body is breathing. It's not that we're sending the breath there. This is not a yogic exercise, which itself is very useful too. It's that the breath sensations are all over. It's just that we're not aware of them. Sometimes there are blockages, emotional and physical, so we don't feel it. A lot of those even work themselves out. You recall we uh, mentioned, I think, you know, last time that breath awareness is also a kind of breath therapy, even though we're not intentionally doing that. Because as the quality of the breath, as the breath heals itself through, through self-awareness, not through any techniques that are beyond that, just through consciousness, uh, it has effects throughout. So now, in the fourth, uh, if you can get a sense that the body is sitting, it's breathing, uh, awareness is there, and there's a very stable place from which to practice. Uh, this is also in another language when we, to uh, when we talk about samadhi, having samadhi developing, or the power of the mind, Narayan mentioned the other night, last, last night. Uh, what tends to happen as the mind's concentration becomes more continuous is you enter into and hear the, the next set of contemplations. This is the classical method unfolding, which have to do with feelings. I'm going to be treating it very briefly, emphasizing 
certain aspects of it just so you get a feeling for it. Because if I don't give you a sense of what the classical method is, I can't, how can I tell you what the consolidated one is? I mean, you have to understand how do we go from 16 contemplations to just two without it being McDonald's? Because <laughs> it isn't. It's not, it's not cheating because you cover all 16 in the two if you do it right. So we have to come a long way around the past to get to bre brevity. Okay. The second four contemplations, uh, five, six, seven, and eight, have to do with feelings, Vedana, which means uh, from moment to moment, uh, as long as we're alive, uh, whatever is impinging upon us through the sense doors is having the effect of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's happening all day long. And it's an extremely important thing to see in practice because we devote our lives to this. I mean, we are here because we wanted to gather in some good feelings. That's why we came here, to cop some good feelings. You didn't know that? <laughs> and to get away from the bad ones that we left behind, we thought. Yeah. People will travel around the world, even go to Thailand in the jungles, get sick. And the language may be different, but finally, there's some feelings that we hope we get out of it that are nice ones. Um, in the sutra, the Buddha starts off with two uh, rather dramatic nice feelings that come quite naturally. It's lawful. A few of you have asked questions about this in interviews today. It grows out of a concentrated mind. As the mind becomes one-pointed, that is, it, its ability to sustain attention uh, develops. Uh, you enter into, and this is the fifth one, what is sometimes called piti or rapture. Uh, this is, can be a very, very pleasant state, uh, unless it goes on too long. Uh, and you get fed up with it too, just like anything else. But at any rate, what ha this is, has excitement in it. The mind is very concentrated. The ancients used an analogy Let's say you haven't had water for a long time. and In one sense, uh, the chitta, or the heart, is parched when we come to practice. That's part of why we've come here. We're uh, really thirsty for something. At any rate, as the mind settles down and becomes much more concentrated, uh, certain feelings uh, quite naturally grow out of that. And it's like a traveler who's been in the desert for a long time and has not had water, and suddenly sees water, there's tremendous excitement, tremendous relief, tremendous joy at the sight of water and the opportunity to, to finally take care of thirst. This, quite naturally, as the attention is sustained, evolves into um, what is called a kind of, what is called sukha, a kind of happiness. Sukha is much more calm and quiet. That one you can enjoy for much longer periods of time. You don't get fed up with it. At least I don't. Be happy to have it whenever it comes. Um, the sukha is already present in PT, but it's obscured. It's overpowered by the excitement of seeing the water. The happiness that comes when the excitement kind of calms down is the contentment that happens after you've had the water, in other words, your thirst has been cared for, and there's just a tremendous uh, 
feeling of happiness. Sukha Vedana, happy feelings. Dukkha Vedana are the ones that we don't like, suffering ones. Okay. Uh, and the other, I'm not going to go into all four, but what they have, these very dramatic ones are important because if we can uh, master them, and mastering what that means, I think I'll save for a little bit later, but certainly the beginning of it uh, has to do with our ability to become aware of these feelings once they're aroused. You can't contemplate, you can't do contemplation five or six if you don't have uh, piti and sukha. What would it, it would be imagination. Once you have some degree, and there are degrees of it, uh, rapture can be, uh, the range is quite extraordinary. Once you have some of that, then you can do contemplation five in the classical training. What, what contemplation five is saying, while breathing in and breathing out, contemplate rapture. While breathing in and breathing out, contemplate happiness. But it has to be there for you to contemplate it, and that's something that comes out of the practice. Okay. The other aspects of this, uh, they're called tetrads, this um, set of contemplations of feelings, all of which include the breath, touch upon the wide range of feelings that we have, just from ordinary little annoyances, uh, discomfort, uh, slight pleasantries, uh, to the full range of feelings that come, not quite as dramatic as these two, but uh, that make up our day. Just the sip of a nice cup of tea, and the instant you taste the tea, there's a good feeling. Sukhavedana, it's a, a weak form of it. It's nice. Or you taste the tea and uh, something's off about it. Ooh, I don't like this. And so, in these four, what the yogi would be doing would be spending time, familiar, you would be familiarizing yourself. I mean, the yogi is us, so we may as well make it, my language be accurate. We would be spending time with the full range of feelings that, that humans go through. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. All day long. Sounds come into the ear, you know, the building. Maybe that was unpleasant. Maybe after a while it's neutral. You don't care anymore. Or you hear about the wisdom of not turning it into noise, to just let it be sound. And you're grasping at silence. And because you want a meditation hall to be silent, because meditation hall should be silent, but then it isn't because they're building and sawing and hammering and knocking. But then you hear the teaching and immediately it cures you. <laughs> so you don't grasp after peace. And then it's just neutral. It's just bang, 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 bang. And then a little bird chirps. Chirp, chirp. Oh, that sounds, that's, that's Sukhavedana. So these contemplations are an opportunity to familiarize ourselves with the different feelings that come about through all the different sense doors. And in, uh, in Dharma practice, the mind is a sense door as well. Thoughts have feelings. I mean, th there are thoughts that come through that are unpleasant right away. And then there are pleasant ones, and a lot of them are neutral. Blah, 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 blah. Nothing much. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're...
So we're learning to contemplate the body, and there's a lot more to the body. The body contemplations can include uh, a lot of other things as well. But for tonight, I just want to give you a little bit of a a sense of what what it is. Uh, We contemplate feelings, and then we move on to the mind itself, citta. And this is the part that um, it's sort of the core of when we talk about self-knowledge and uh, self-understanding, the minding the mind. This is it. This, is, this gets at a lot of the hard stuff um, in the classical way of teaching. The main thing that's being asked, again, I'm not going to go through all, all four. There are another set of four. The Indians love lists, I guess. I mean, they're just endless. But they're not arbitrary, I've found. Uh, if you have a practice, the lists are not just uh, arbitrary. They're not just a laundry. Actually, a laundry list is practical. So this one is too. Um, I think if you understand this one, and I'll read it to you. I'm breathing in and I'm thoroughly uh, breathing in and thoroughly experiencing my mind. I'm breathing out and thoroughly experience my, experiencing my mind. The yogi practices like this. What does that mean? Recall I mentioned the kilesas. Uh, the, these are. Um, you can't know anything about Buddhism without, you have to know the Kalesas. If you say, I'm a Buddhist, but you never heard of the Kalesas, uh, the Bo- tears are streaming down the Buddha's cheeks. Uh, I'm sure you do know the Kalesas, and you know them well. It's greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay. So what are the, these are all uh, lessons. Each contemplation is a kind of lesson using the breath to help us contemplate nature. And in this case, it's our nature. So, in the classical way, you would be devoting time to observing the mind itself while breathing in and breathing out and getting to see the mind uh, with craving. What's that like? What's it like when the mind is Wanting, wanting, wanting. I want, I want, I want. I've got to get, I've got to have. <laughs> What's that like? And so getting to know that mind state. Getting to see it, experience it. Getting some experience in being with it. You've heard us say that a lot. Being intimate with the feelings, being intimate with these different mind states. That means no separation. We'll go into more detail about what does it mean to be for example, for there to be no separation between you and anguish, fear, loneliness, anxiety, boredom, and so forth. How do you do that? What is that? And that, that's crucial in our practice. So when the mind produces wanting, you find the mind is like a digestive organ. It secretes it. We don't ask for it. it just, there it is. Want, want, want you get to know the mind with craving. Then uh, its close friend or enemy is not want, the mind that doesn't want. It's trying to rid itself of things, aversion. It hates. It is aggressive against something. It's trying to separate itself from something. It's trying to destroy something. 
it's angry at something, it's resentful. So you get to know the mind that is averse to anything, really. It can be, as we know, we can get angry and be averse to pretty much anything. Well, what's it like when the mind is that way? And all the while, as we breathe in and as we breathe out. So we gain some experience in being intimate with some of these very unpleasant states. Not so easy, as you know, because we don't like those states. And, and the intimacy that Dogen is talking about means we drop our preferences. It's a full, raw, naive, innocent, and total touching of whatever the, the mind state is. And then delusion or confusion. Uh, what's it like when the mind is chasing its own tail? Confused, ambivalent, in conflict, uh, fuzzy, kind of seeing darkly, seeing through the world through ha a haze, a thick pea soup. We all know those feelings. And you can say sloth, torpor, sleepiness. Those are uh, more benign aspects of how the mind becomes. What's it like when the mind is that way? So one of the main challenges of the contemplation of the mind is to certainly know these three main mind states and their children and close relatives. Uh, and then our work's not done. What's the mind like when it isn't wanting? Let's say in, those, in that second or two when we're not wanting something. Oh, nice. Just sitting here and breathing. Well, that's not, it's not that nothing's happening. Something is happening. What's happening is you're not wanting. It's a real place. It's a real uh, quality to our experience. Consciousness is a certain way. When uh, things are good enough, it's okay. There's no craving or grasping after anything. Clearly, as the practice matures, there's more of this. But uh, some of that, you can't contemplate that if you don't have it, right? And in one sense, there's a, uh, the unfoldment of these 16 to some degree closely matches how things seem to unfold naturally as we practice longer, become more committed to the practice. It's not just a matter of time. Uh, some of the, the ability to uh, have mind states where, which are free of wanting Maybe we don't have so much of that at first, but later on we have more of it. So then the contemplation becomes contemplating the mind that is not wanting anything while breathing in and breathing out. And then similarly, uh, the aversive mind, the mind that is not against anything. The mind is just at peace. What's that like? Getting to know that mind state as you breathe in and as you breathe out. And then when we get to confusion, Sometimes our mind is quite clear. And as we know, the, uh, if you keep practicing, you'll see that seems to be infinite, the degree to which the mind can brighten and become luminous and clear, and clear in every way. What's it like when the mind is not in confusion, is not ambivalent, is not in conflict, but is just right there, just sees every, sees that the sky is blue and the grass is green. It really sees it. 
Very, very clear. No, no problems. Nice. We see that mind state. Okay, we've covered three. Three. We're, we're now getting into... We haven't gotten to Vipassana yet. The first twelve contemplations are a mixture of Vipassana and Shamatha. Of course, uh, insights come when they do. You can't practice insight meditation, really. I know we're here, but uh, it's, in a way, we, the language is a little misleading. You can practice mindfulness, but you can't practice insight. Uh, you can practice mindfulness, and an insight can come out of a mind that is, uh, has the right conditions, where the energy is right, the, fi- the five qualities that Narayan talked about last night. Insights come when they come. It's a, it's a, a seeing, a grasping of what's what. The last four, excuse me, so all along, even though these are, uh, the first is primarily shamatha, but of course you're learning things about yourself as you examine and become more familiar with the body, as you become more familiar with feelings, as you become more familiar with your own mind states. Uh, How could you miss the fact that that impermanence is there? and other uh, kinds of learning that goes on. But officially, in other words, specifically, the contemplation is not about that. The contemplation is about what I've just been suggesting. When we get to 13 through 16, then we get into pure vipassana. Uh, This one could take a long time, and so I'm just going to give you a... Well, we'll see, but um, you need to understand this one very much and I'm trying to help you understand it in terms of this sutra. The 13th is uh, packed. It's got uh, a lot of stuff in it. I'll read it to you. I'm breathing in and observing the impermanent nature of all formations. I'm breathing out and and observing the impermanent nature of all formations. The yogi practices like this. Sound familiar? Okay, here, uh, as we breathe, we begin to notice that everything is changing. Uh, Typically, uh, the classical way of beginning this is that uh, teachers would have you look at the breath itself. But now, we did that already, right? Remember, we started all the way back with contemplation one, looking at the breath. But here, we're looking at the breath, but we have a particular frame of reference. It's not that we're thinking, but now we're observing the breath. And if it's true that everything is impermanent, then the breath uh, should be subject to that lawfulness as well. And we, uh, it's, for many of us, it's the easiest way to begin to, to see this law at work. And you begin to notice that uh, each in-breath, wherever you follow it, begins and ends. Each out-breath begins and ends. Uh, You can um, go at it in different ways, and and we will in a moment. So here, we've begun to really practice Vipassana. Uh, Not only are you going to be seeing impermanence, Uh, but also sometimes you'll see the unsatisfactoriness. 
that comes about because everything is changing. That is, life is uncertain. Everything is uncertain. It is not saying that life is no good or uh, Buddhists are just these dour, depressed people who just walk around saying how awful everything is, it's all suffering. Uh, maybe, I don't know, there may be some truth to that, but uh, clearly suffering and impermanence have some link. I mean, they're, they're not unrelated, let's put it that way. The fact that everything is changing, and especially the fact that we don't live in accordance with that law, produces a lot of suffering. Put more positively, uh, one of the things that grows out of development and practice is our ability to embrace the law of impermanence. Some would say that's enlightenment itself, to fully and totally embrace it. It means there's no attachment to life or death and his uh, full ability to live and to die. Also, we begin to get into, uh, and here I'm feeling a little uh, overprotective about the people who are really new because so often phrases like emptiness confuse even those of us who've practiced for a while, even a long time. But uh, impermanence in the 13th contemplation as used by the Buddha, when you read uh, this occurs elsewhere in the suttas. When you read it this way by itself, typically it includes unsatisfactoriness and also anatta, empty, not-self. Because they grow out of it. They're really slightly different ways of seeing the same thing. If you can, that's why impermanence is such a profound door. Don't underestimate the importance of seeing uh, the changing nature of everything. Uh, it, it's not a, a negative thing. It's a liberating insight. Uh, some of what you may have to learn to deal with is your, your fear of the implications of what you see, but it goes way beyond that, because even your fear is impermanent. So as you're, if you can walk through the door of anicca, of impermanence, we do that chant every night, Uh, it's a very, it's just a hair, a hair away from seeing that there's no such thing as a solid self, a substantial self. Because if you, when you start to look at the mind, which is a, a harder thing to look at, it's very subtle, the coming and going of mind states, you begin to see that none of them stay around. You all know that one well, right? You've already been packed and unpacked and now you're happy to be here and you hate it, you hate Narayan and I, you love us, we're fantastic, we're, you're already headed for Burma, you can't wait to get out of here. Just, uh, so mind state is just zipping past all the time. The best mind state to keep of all of these is the one that decided to practice. <laughs> keep that one. Let the other ones, don't let them rule you because that's the one that got you here. That's the one that paid for the retreat, got you all packed up and on the, in the car, bus, airplane, whatever, got you here. But we, it doesn't, we lose it a lot. The mind that decided to practice, that's the one to keep. Come back to that one over and over and over again. In the hardest of times, no matter how, what you think is happening to in your life, get back to that one. The mind that decided to practice, there is one. We know it, it's a fact. You're here, look at this. It's useful to, to know that. 
as we see impermanence, whoops, that, there it is. Yeah. Well, I, okay. I think I, I almost have to honor the time, otherwise uh, I will have undermined everything I said. Uh, so l- let me quickly. Uh, we'll f- we'll finish up uh, tomorrow, uh, whenever day after tomorrow. As you begin to observe, uh, to observe, while breathing and breathing out, in and breathing out, what you see is that the mind states come and go. Uh, they may seem solid, but that's. A large part of what we mean by delusion or ignorance. They're not. If you look carefully at them, you'll see that they, uh, now they're here, now they're gone. Here today, gone tomorrow, whatever that cliche is. Okay. And it just keeps happening like that. At a certain point, you can't help but get a sense that the mind, uh, these mind states, even when the menacing ones seem so powerful, like they're going to last forever, they only seem like they're going to last forever. And they only seem like they're tremendously substantial. But when you look closely at them, and of course that's giving you a hint as to the direction the practice goes in from here on in, you see that they're cloud-like. They're empty. Empty doesn't mean they don't exist. They exist. They're there. But they're not there in the way in which you think they're there. We've imputed to them a reality that they really don't lack. But you can only see that through close investigation. And that's immensely liberating. Of course, in order to be able to do this, you have to uh, look and see the impermanence and the insubstantiality of your story. Are you willing to do that? My story? Okay, uh, I'm going to leave you with this thought. When we pick up from here, I'm going to... back up and I'm going to show you in, in this method what you would do if you had the time and inclination to practice it this classical way. You would then go back to contemplation one, right where we began. It's not really kindergarten. And you could, if you, you can move through all 12 again. And sometimes it just takes a, few, a minute, a few minutes. It's not like it takes forever. Because at this point, you've been practicing for a while. Your mind is fit to do all kinds of things that it may not be fit to do right now. Please understand that, those of you who are new. If this sounds way ahead of you, uh, you just walked in the door, literally. And this is a lifetime's work. This is not a crash program to anything, or weekend to this, or nine days to that. I told you, it's a low-budget film, and it's for adults. (laughs) This is adult entertainment, but not not that kind. (laughs) So what happens is you 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 start all over. Like long breath, short breath, you see that long doesn't remain long forever. It becomes short, and short doesn't remain short. It becomes long. We'll go over that. But let me leave you with this thought, because it might be helpful in your practice between now and the next time. The uh, taking up impermanence as a contemplation... uh, 
requires a lot of certain kinds of development in practice for most of us. In my own experience with my own practice and uh, observing a fair number of practices now, uh, certainly the degree to which you have some samadhi is invaluable. If your mind is all over the place, the, the kind of uh, learning that you will be uh, gaining, can't use that word as people don't feel it's ambition, let's say the learning that can take place about the truth of impermanence will be relatively superficial. You already know that everything is impermanent, but it's not transformative, that knowing, because it's just in the head. It's got to go into the marrow of the bones. We've got to really get it. And uh, that takes some depth of seeing, because we already have gotten it as a menu item, but there's no meal yet. When the mind has the strength of samadhi in back of it, the level of seeing is different, so that the same event can be seen as impermanent, and yet it has a, an impact that is incomparable. The other thing that helps is you have to be ready uh, to switch to impermanence as a frame of reference. Let me give you this example, because I've seen it a lot in Cambridge, and one example comes to mind, which is typical of what I'm about to say, and then I think we'll leave it at that for the evening. What comes to mind right at this moment is someone extremely intelligent, uh, extremely devoted to the practice, very devoted to the practice, uh, studies, sits, does retreats, etc. You know, someone who's really solidly on the path, and yet a particular mind state. In this case, it was a kind of fear. Uh, when we would get to it, the instructions would be, can you see that this mind state is impermanent? Can you watch it and see that it changes? The person couldn't do it. It was not for lack of intelligence. It was not for lack of motivation. Samadhi was reasonable. But what it is, is you see, it's asking us to switch from the level of content to the level of process. Because when you hear what the law of impermanence is saying, the Buddha uses an analogy. He says, just as the taste of the ocean water is salty wherever you dip into it, so the taste of everything is impermanent wherever you dip into it. That is a, like a great leveler. That means your story, my story, it's the same story. It's all impermanent from this point of view. If you, if you get fixated on content, and we need to relate to content as well. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but most of us are fixated on content. This set of instructions is saying, in, in, a, in effect, it short-circuits content. It's saying, yes, that's true. Uh, you're frightened of the dark, or you're frightened of wide open spaces, or whatever it is, because this happened in your life. But the content is so compelling that uh, even though you're intelligent, you're motivated, you hear it, there's a, really a resistance and an unwillingness to be able to see this lawfulness, which seems abstract and not even practical. And so, in this case, what uh, happened, and this, this is not unusual, what I can say, I think Narayan would probably agree with me, thank God for psychotherapists. Or I think we would have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> person went into therapy and was able to work on this particular fear not by looking at it, because that was not so realistic. It wasn't realistic, period. But by 
talking about it, investigating it, exploring it over a period of time, and kind of loosening it up a bit, making it approachable. And then uh, the meditation instructions were manageable. This was, a, this was one of those times when it worked. Then, then the ability to... Uh, also, I guess, with time, you get tired of your story. How many times can you see Gone with the Wind? <laughs> I walked out after, the, I think it was the, yeah, the, the fifth one, the fifth time. I, I just, when she started with Tara and all that stuff, uh, couldn't take it. Okay. It's the same in a way. How many more times do you have to see Gone with the Wind, but your version of it? Okay. Could we have a few moments of silence? This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on March 8, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.